Hi, I'm Caitlin Rose, and this is my fantasy funeral. Imagine you are dead, but you get to design your own funeral. What songs will be played? Who will deliver your eulogy? And where will your remains rest forevermore? This is the scenario presented to my guest today. I'm Ryan Briegel, and you're listening to my fantasy funeral. My guest today is a songwriter and vocalist with a talent for making heartbreak sound almost triumphant. She was born in Texas and moved to Nashville when she was still a child. Both her parents became involved in Nashville's music industry, with her mother responsible for writing a number of very big country hits. But my guest's own early musical efforts were far from the sound of country. Some might call it anti-folk. Initially under the name Save Macaulay, the band, although there was no band, and later under her own name, by which time she had assembled a backing group of Nashville's finest. Never losing her individual spirit, her songs began to slow in tempo. Where she once delivered rapid-fire vocals, now there was time to reflect on each languorous lyrical line. Audiences reacted positively to her new speed. Her album, Own Side Now, was on Time Magazine's list of top 10 albums for 2011. And overseas, she began headlining her own tours and receiving rave reviews from the UK press. Perhaps by design, her musical style has never been easy to pin down. Critics will often bring up the names Patsy and Loretta. But truly, her songs inhabit so many sonic spaces. She has said, quote, I like when I can show people that it's not all one genre and everything is very much inspired by everything else. You can't just be focused on this one little pocket of music, or else you're going to be bored. Luckily, we won't be bored, because whatever my guest does next, it is sure to defy expectations. She is Caitlin Rose. Before we speak with Caitlin, let's hear her performance on Newsnight from BBC Scotland in 2010. This is Sinful Wishing Well. Caitlin, welcome to my fantasy funeral. Hi, thanks for having me. Today we are going to kill you off and take a look at the funeral you would plan for yourself. And we will hear the five songs that you have chosen to be played during your funeral. Caitlin, was it agony having to choose the perfect five songs? Um, I wouldn't say agony. I, I, um, like I said earlier, it's the last playlist you get to make. So <laughs> hopefully, you know, everybody would have a chance to do that. But it was actually kind of fun, aside from being a little bit depressing. <laughs> yes, I hope it was a little fun. 
you have arranged for us a very nice order of events for your fantasy funeral, and it begins with your guests arriving and walking into a pair of piano preludes. Tell me about these pieces, and especially about the performer. Well, I guess it's a, a rec. I don't know how I found it. Uh, this is a record by a woman named Jenny Lynn, and it's all of these Russian preludes, and it's called Preludes to a Russian Revolution, so kind of turn of the century. Uh, my favorites have been these Arthur Laurie, uh, the Prelude Fragile set, and I listened to it a lot, to the point where it sort of ingrained itself in my brain, and I figured that would be one to jam from the coffin for everybody else. <laughs> Since I've listened to it in bathtubs all over the world, it just made sense. I found it funny you mentioned to your friends this is basically your walk-in music for your <laughs> funeral, and they found that strange, almost like it was a wedding. Well, they did, and, um, you know, I've never been married, so this is the, my first chance to be a bridezilla, um, except, you know, the groom is death. Yeah, I mean, a funeral is just a wedding you can't complain about later, so... From Arthur Lurie's Prelude Number no. 3 and Anatole Leodob's Prelude in D-flat Major, performed by Jenny Lynn from her collection Preludes for a Revolution. Caitlin, you were born in Dallas, Texas, and lived there till about seven. Do you have fond memories of your childhood in Texas? Uh, I don't remember very much, but, you know, I've spent every Christmas of my life in Dallas and many other, you know, family occasions, so I have fond memories. Like, mostly my grandparents' house, which was out in Tyler, kind of out in a in the hills a little bit. It was still a suburb, but it was very wooded and nice, and um, pine needles were fucking everywhere, so <laughs> you couldn't really walk without sticking yourself. But yeah, I, I have fond memories, but not very many. 
And then your family moved to Nashville. Your father got a job here. Were you sad to leave Dallas? Do you remember maybe even being excited about Nashville? Was it some kind of adventure at that age? Or you just went along for the ride? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was a pretty lengthy change. My my dad actually went to Nashville for almost six months before us. So it was a long move. Um, yeah, I feel like I um, I was in the middle of first grade and I think that I might have embarrassed myself like the day before we actually moved. So it was kind of perfect. I'd, You're out of there. I ran from the scene of the crime, <laughs> if you will. Your mother is also a songwriter, but she wasn't always. And she really didn't become known for that until maybe when you were a teenager. Was it strange to come home one day and your mother is suddenly working with country songwriters? Um, not really. I grew up with a lot of songwriters anyways. My dad, um, you know, played in bands all through his 20s and high school and toured until he met my mom. And I kind of grew up in a musical house. You know, that's what I would come home to is usually two strangers in my living room mm. writing a song. And most of those strangers were really great people. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure it was formative in some way. I was too busy, you know, pretending that I didn't like my parents at the time, I'm sure. Right. You've talked about your first public performance being in an English class, <laughs> when instead of writing an essay that you were assigned, you chose to write and perform a song. I believe the topic was an event from history, maybe even a little political. What grade was this? Do you remember? Oh, this must have been sophomore year. How did the performance go? <laughs> I know I was wearing a red sweater, and I'm pretty sure by the end of it, it I just was one big red blob. Um, and I ran out of the room, probably not crying, but obviously distraught. And uh, my teacher, who had actually transferred to the same high school with me that same year, came out and had some very nice things to say. So yeah, I, th I think it was a good moment. I, I, I have a lot of anxiety, so that seems to cover up a lot of memories for me, but I think it was good. Do you remember at least being proud of what you had come up with yes. before the performance? Yes, because there was a curse word in it, and I remember feeling pretty stoked on, uh, I think it was, the, it was definitely the F word, which I already oh. said, so fuckers. The topic was Selma, mm -hmm. the Martin Selma. Did you have, as a sophomore in high school, a very socially aware take on this march? I'm sure I did. I mean, I was listening to a lot of Joan Baez at the time, so anybody who's digging into those records and yeah. digging into any kind of topical folk and even just the brutality of history in general. So you were in introducing your them. class to protest songs? Uh, I think it was a civil, civil rights project, so in lieu of the essay, the song, which... I don't know if I'd even written any songs yet, so that might have been my first attempt. Yeah, that's amazing. So at this point in your fantasy funeral, your guests have taken their seats. The preludes have concluded. What comes next for everyone? Next up is, um, I guess it's kind of a live recording of Artie Shaw and his band with Helen Forrest doing one of my favorite songs, which is called Deep Purple. And I don't know. It's one that haunts me forever. And... Hopefully it'll haunt everybody else forever. Um, and I actually, I did a big party a few years ago called Red Violet Valentine's where that was sort of the intro song. It was like a big band Valentine's Day show and I remember walking out to that and it was just a wonderful moment. It's a wonderful song with a kind of an insane melody and I, I just love it a lot. When the deep purple falls over sleepy garden Through the mist of a memory 
Forest singing Deep Purple with Artie Shaw and his orchestra. Caitlin, perhaps emboldened from your English class performance, you began performing songs you'd written on acoustic guitar in various Nashville venues, and you build yourself as Save Macaulay the Band. But after a few years of performing under this band name, you opted to use your own name. But more importantly, your songwriting started to change. You moved from a style of quickly sung lyrics, very fast guitar strumming, almost to the style of a crooner, with much slower, sublime, melodic lines. Do you remember a conscious effort in the new songs you were writing to slow down what you were singing? Well, perfect segue, I guess. I I started listening to a lot of Linda Ronstadt, and um, I think that those were the records that really turned me on to country music, aside from Graham Parsons. But you know, her her biggest talent was picking the best songs. And I think at some point I just wanted to write the best songs. And it was a change from, you know, the confessional to the art form and um, the rules of it and the the ability to really live inside a song as opposed to just spilling your guts out in front of a bunch of people you don't know. Which, it, it, I mean, it's still that, but in a, in a more fine-tuned way. Mm-hmm. Hearing a song like For the Rabbits, is very telling, for instance. It was a song you performed as Save Macaulay, but rearranged for the Own Side Now album. It's nearly the same song. It has the same <laughs> melody, the same lyrics, but it's just dressed quite differently. Were you proud that you could take something that you wrote when you were a bit younger and present it in this new, fresh way? I think I was probably proud, but I was more just uh, scrambling for songs to put on a first record. Okay. Um, because that, you know, your first record is where, you know, you've built this small catalog and you want to come out swinging. So I'd never thought I was going to make a record. And yeah, that was um, with Jeremy Ferguson, I think, that we first kind of map that out too that's very nice and everybody else saw something in it which I think was really encouraging too even in the style of like Linda Ronstadt taking another song and being like oh but we can do it this way and Mm -hmm. this is Mm -hmm. it was a refashioning yeah English audiences took notice of you early on when was the first time you realized that something was really happening when you were over there uh I don't know that I did (laughs) I think I still I think I still wonder there were some funny moments, but over there, the scene is so much more insular, and the music scene in general, it's just, it's a little bit easier to move around the map, you know, and, um, you know, starting to sell out these clubs that I couldn't even open here, and it, it was very odd, but for the most part, a very wonderful experience. But so, after doing so well in England, did you never consider moving there? Did you never think, oh, this is where I need to be? I'm sure I thought about it. Um, this was this is just my home. My family's here. Um, 
my whole family's here. I, I don't I don't really feel great when I don't live in the same town as my family, as wimpy as that sounds. Um, and also coming off tour, you know, it was always nice to come home. Mm. And it was it was always such a crazy time. And we would go over there for six weeks and stuff, and it, it was a lot. And being able to come home was probably the only reason I stayed sane. So, and I knew everyone here, like musicians and producers and people that I really trusted their musical taste mm-hmm. <laughs> not the word yeah it just i had a i had a support system here i understand you clearly appreciate the tradition of interpretation and something i've noticed is that when you record songs originally by someone else it seems they are most often originally sung by men you've uh done songs by misfits rolling stones Nicklo, arctic monkeys a lovely version of a national song I wondered if there was something about switching the voice from male to female that you found either fascinating or a challenge to see how you could twist with it a little bit. I think that it's it's a it's a bold move in some ways, but also, I mean, those were really always just my favorite songs. And I don't know if it's so much playing with it. I don't, I don't know if it was intentional. I think I've just always heard songs as a song as opposed to songs as the person singing them. Yeah. And, you know, I would hope the same for me, that people would hear my songs and kind of feel themselves in it. And, um, and hell, if you want to cut it, just go ahead. I don't, <laughs> I ain't mad. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> Your third song choice is by this singer who we've mentioned just a little bit. Um, I cannot imagine the difficulty you had in picking just one song from her. Tell me about this song and what she means to you. Well, I guess the funny thing is, is that Part of me was like, well, I'm not going to put a Linda song on there because there's just too many. And, um, and of course she would. And But there's this James Taylor song that I grew up on and that for some reason struck me as kind of the perfect one, which was never my favorite. It's All of her records are my favorite. But the song is You Can Close Your Eyes, which, you know, having been to funerals, I, I think that there's a moment that everyone should be able to have with themselves um, where they can close their eyes and they unselfconsciously and um, and pay respect to their relationship with that person or their understanding and I guess it's just like an encouraging note and also you know my family loves this song and it just felt like the right one well it won't be long before another day we're gonna
Linda Ronstadt, and you can close your eyes from her album Heart Like a Wheel. Linda Ronstadt, of course, sadly has Parkinson's and is no longer able to sing, which is a horrible thing to happen. Does that sort of thing ever cross your mind for you, uh, how you would react if you suddenly could no longer express yourself with your voice? Yes, it does a lot. Uh, And it's an interesting thing, too, because... I think Linda Ronstadt's voice was magnificent, um, but she also was, you know, is one of the most, like, well-read, prolific pop musicians, and, you know, I think that even as someone with a voice that people love and with a voice that touches people, that um, there's always another facet to you, and I think that I, I don't I don't know that I wouldn't be able to make that transition into something else or another medium, because um, I can always write, and I, I could always do that. Uh, it would suck not being able to sing, though, because I just, I really do love it. But, um, yeah, I think about that a whole lot, actually. Caitlin, in 2015, you put on something that you referenced earlier on Valentine's Day. You hosted a very special night in Nashville called Red Violet Valentine's. I believe it featured dinner, drinks, and dancing, <laughs> and a full orchestra backing you and loads of special guests performing songs from the first half of the 20th century. What brought this idea of a one-of-a-kind evening to your mind, do you think? I don't even know. I don't know who said I could do that. It, <laughs> and I don't know who thought it was a good idea for me to carry it out because it really, that was, I, you know, event planning is something I've never done. Um, this might be my second jaunt in that. But I'm a curator first, I think, which is kind of goes back to what we were just talking about. Like, I do love to sing, but I think my favorite thing to do is collect you know, make collections. And I kind of had this collection of 1920s through 1950s even um, standards and ballads. And I just, I wanted to see them on a stage and I wanted to see my friends sing them. And I wanted to see people's reaction to being taken into that world. And um, it was a really beautiful night. I uh, I got got a little messy, Um, but for a first year, I think we did okay. And, uh, I keep threatening to do it again, but I probably have to hire a new therapist first. Messy in what way? Uh, sentimental or oh, just or well, booze? just honestly, it was kind of on me because I had so many songs that I really wanted, and you know now people are doing covers nights two, three nights a week, and uh, not like this. I don't. think. This was a yeah. This was like three sets. It was sort of, it was sort of brutal, um, and I feel like I may have been a like a bit uh, over enthusiastic and uh, I misjudged the amount of work it would be but everybody pulled it off and everybody believed in it and um, and it was a really great night and you'll know better for next time that's when true you, when you, you gotta do it again. wrong to do it right man do it bad get Come it over a five with five year anniversary coming yeah. up soon <laughs> oh god now I really have to do it you must you have a fascination not only with the style of music, but also the physical sheet music of that era. What draws <laughs> you to this sort of strange combination of art and music and commerce? Because that's what they sold back then from so long ago. Where, where does this come from? Uh, I, I think it comes from it being such a beautiful combination. And I, I was a pretty diligent visual artist in my younger days. And now I, I don't do so much of that. And I think that they're just these special little gems of, uh, you know, people being inspired by a song and creating a piece of art around it. And also I do this thing on Instagram called Fun With Sheet Music, uh, which didn't start until a long time after my my fascination with sheet music, which I can hardly read 
music. So it's kind of useless for me aside from the, the visual aspect of it. But this thing called fun with sheet music where um, I'll tack on a line or two to the original title. And that's that's when I got really into them because I just I want to make people laugh. And uh, I think my first one was, oh, I think it was like a 1930 song called When They Ask Me About You. And then I, I wrote, I Tell Them You Died, which, oh, that fits fits the mood fits perfectly some of those titles are just begging for they are and that's what's so funny especially in a in a snarky perhaps that's the point is to make light of something i love which is a ridiculous notion to have we've come to your fourth choice at which time you expect this song to produce a room full of tears i believe tell me about this song uh this is a live version of sarah vaughn singing i'll be seeing you which um I think everybody knows this song. I don't think this is a rare tune, but this version is a haunting and painful version. And I, I don't, it's very slow. It's very, very built to just drag tears out of people's faces, which it's done for me many a time. I think it's one of the most miraculous vocals I've ever heard. Uh, and I would love for everybody to experience that and sob powerfully. A round of applause for Sarah Vaughn and I'll Be Seeing You. Caitlin, people who know you well will know that you not only have an interest, but also quite a knowledge of astrology. Oh, no. Was this something you were drawn to as a teenager or was it a more recent thing you got into? You know, I don't think I knew a person whose mom hadn't bought like the day of birth book, whatever it was. I I think it's something that you know, we're all exposed to. And I surely had somewhat more of an interest in it 
back then than other people, but um, it's it's a funny language that takes a really long time to learn. So. Um, but what are your actual views of it? Do you take it somewhat seriously? I think I've been able to utilize it in ways that have been helpful. There's so much to it, and there's so much beauty in um, the idea of the make the making up of a person, and um, and how how defined that can be if you actually know what you're looking at. Have you found yourself making decisions in relationships based on it? <laughs> Perhaps even subconsciously and you realize, oh wow. I mean, there's a few things that I avoid, <laughs> um, but then it somehow just keeps coming back to me, which is the funniest part is that I think a big lesson in astrology, even if you're not taking it super seriously or literally, is you'll see the patterns that kind of come up. And um, I can't fucking date someone without Moon Pluto to save my life. So (laughs) even though it might be my downfall, it's something that seems to pop up every Mm. goddamn time. Um, It is funny. That's a that is something, though, that I I have found to be pretty prevalent is there are patterns and they do happen. And everybody everybody has patterns in their lives. And if this is the way that um, you can make sense of them and see them in a very right on the page kind of way, then might as well listen. Might as well. How much are you willing to talk about a new album, Caitlin? That's a that's a rough and rocky road. The answer might be <laughs> none at all. Well, no, I mean, I still very much have a record that I want to make and that I'm very excited about and um, some songs that I really, really love. It's also funny because, you know, the first record, it was, it was a, a week, and the second record, it was two months of writing and a week and this record has been six years of writing and six years of trying and six years of uh really really trying to get it right and um and I'm still trying to figure out how to do that that's important yeah Caitlin at this point in your fantasy funeral Sarah Vaughn has sung her final tortured note Mm -hmm. there is a round of applause (laughs) and sonically we may I may try to uh, move straight from those uh, claps to this next song. Where do we find ourselves now? I mean, we find ourselves at a party, unfortunately, for those who were not prepared, because I love a party, and uh, I love a martini, specifically a 50-50, and that's what is going to be served in this whatever banquet hall that we are moving into after our service, and um, everyone is basically being forced into a dance party tradition that I feel like it's been carried out at least three or four times, which is a dance party to the song Gypsy by Fleetwood Mac. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's the right move necessarily, but I feel like everyone will have gone through the ringer, uh, hopefully if they gave a shit, and um, might be ready to imbibe and, and enjoy something in a very free-spirited way. And I think that's another reason with the Linda Ronstadt song. It's like encouraging those moments and encouraging a, a lack of self-consciousness, encouraging kind of an openness. And uh, if you can dance after a funeral, you can dance after anything.
Fleetwood Mac and Gypsy from their album Mirage, Caitlin Rose's final fantasy song choice. Have you thought about the person you would choose to deliver your eulogy? I have, um, but it mostly came from the need to make sure somebody does it right. And I, I don't really want to put that in the hands of anyone who would be too emotional or is already a scatterbrain. Um, and so <laughs> I called him and made sure it was okay. But um, at this particular moment in time, it's on Lonnie Hutchins, who, yeah, he seems to be the only person I could think of that uh, could carry it out with the humor required um, and the, I guess, respect or even just whatever the manner is, coffin-side manner that it needs. And, um, yeah, I think he would get it together. I think he would do a good job at that. And I'm, I'm sorry to put that on you. I um. I just, I, you know, I don't trust my other friends, bud. Sorry. I did have the notion of, of calling up the deceased Foster Brooks, who, you know, was the king of roasting, but usually came at it. F- he always pretended to be plastered. He would always do these roasts, um, like for Lucille Ball or Don Rickles or, you know, Hollywood's elite. But he would do it as a person from their past, quote unquote, which not really, like it would be, you know, Jimmy Stewart's old um, fighter pilot buddy or Lucille Ball's high school teacher or just, but just go up there and just obliterate them. So I really, really would have enjoyed, I think, a Foster Brooks roast um, in my final moments resting here on this earth. I mean, Lonnie can do it in the style of Foster Brooks. He does love, an, impre- he does love an impression, well, but... Might be up for it. He could nail it. His Aaron Neville is great. So, I mean, we'll see. Huh. Is there anything special you would like, whoever does it, to read? In those moments, there's not a lot of things that anyone can say that really, I think, would hit the magnitude or hit the, you know, emotional point that it requires. But um, so I went through tons of poems today and yesterday trying to track down something that I felt that, you know, I kind of went at it from like, okay, if I died today, what would I pick? And I came across this one from uh, a poem by a woman named Sarah Williams, I think the late 1800s, called The Old Astronomer. And um, it's a very long poem, and it's, it's from an, it's an aging, dying astronomer to his pupil, uh, encouraging him, you know, not to feel without um, guidance or, you know, you're not lost, you're fine. And um, there is this perfect couplet in it, and I think that, if there's anything in songwriting that I always loved more than anything, it's a perfect two-line couplet. And I found a really good one. And it's, Though my soul may set in darkness, it will rise in perfect light. I have loved the stars too truly to be fearful of the night. I would ask if you've decided what you would like to happen to your body after you die, but it seems you make a good case for a number of options. What are the top <laughs> contenders, Caitlin? Honestly, I feel like this is going to have to be somebody else's call in the end. I, I'm a two-track mind with pretty much everything, so, you know, I, I, can, see, I can see the beauty in ashes to ashes, you know, that it makes sense. But the question is, where do your ashes end up in 50 to 100 years? And the idea of being scattered really shook me. I don't know what I should, you know, bring to therapy about that. So I, I guess it would be between a natural burial. So Tennessee's first natural preserve for um, natural burial, which is Larkspur Conservation. Um, and I'm not, I, I'm not quite 
sure how far out it is, um, but I think it's on a very nice plot of land, and um, it looks like a place that won't be boiled over by con- with condos in the next 10 years, and that would be my other fear with burial. And then, you know, there's also the idea of, of a classic cemetery, um, classic coffin. I don't know. I, uh, I really think it, it, for me, it would be mostly up to whoever was carrying that process out, but I'm sort of either way, and not having to make a decision is my favorite thing in the world, um, especially one where I'm not even alive for it, so I won't even be able to be mad. Like I said, you can't you can't complain about it later. So I understand you have a, a very creative idea that your guests can participate in for you. Tell me about this. I'm not sure it's coming from the creative side of my brain. It's more the um, less shit to clean out of my house for people, which I, for some reason, have a tendency to buy a lot of postcards on tour and have always had that tendency and then forget to send them to anyone. So there is a large collection of postcards in my house that I thought before the funeral, instead of a guest book, which is generally what people do um, from what I've experienced, to have postcards that everyone can pick one and maybe write whatever they're feeling and whatever they felt like sharing or, I don't know, drop it in the casket. I'll read it later. (laughs) You'll have some time. Yeah. Very nice. This has been quite wonderful. Caitlin Rose, thank you for taking us through your fantasy funeral. Thank you for having me micromanaging my own death. I appreciate it. We close today with a song from Caitlin's album, The Stand-In. This is When I'm Gone. My Fantasy Funeral is brought to you by We Own This Town. Full versions of the songs chosen today can be heard on our Spotify playlist. Find out more at myfantasyfuneral.show. I'm Ryan Briegel. Thank you for listening.